Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Pull back out and be reminded that these islands have always been in a state of flux, that things staying the same is an illusion. And the outline that's so familiar that people think of when they think of the British Isles, it doesn't exist. In this week's podcast, we're travelling to a place swirling with myths and legends. A rich land, prized and protected by the people who lived there. Rising sea levels, an unstoppable flood. And the creation of the Welsh Atlantis. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last podcast, you took us to meet a person, a time traveller from the Bronze Age, the incredible Amesbury Archer. Where or who are we meeting this week? Well, we're in Wales, at a place called Borth, and it sits in beautiful Cardigan Bay on the coast, and we're investigating how the legend of Cantrer Gwylod intersects with history, archaeology and landscape. Cantrer Gwylod means the lowland hundred. So lowland obviously means low-lying and it's at sea level. Uh, And a hundred is an old way of um, apportioning land. There are various interpretations of what it means. Some people say that it would refer to an area of uh, territory that had a hundred settlements in it, a hundred villages or whatever. Uh, Other people say that it would be an area that was when required, would have had to produce 100 fighting men for a battle or for a war. Some people say it's a bit of both. So Cantrer Gwylod, the Lowland 100, refers to a territory in lowland, in this instance lowland because it's beside the sea. I mean, I have to, I should really say right at the, at the top that, you know, I'm born in Scotland, 
mostly brought up in Scotland. I have lived in England, uh, but my experience of, of television uh, and writing over the, I mean, really the best part of 20 years has taken me around the archipelago of these islands over and over again. And I've visited, obviously, all over Scotland and England and all over Ireland and all around Wales numerous times. And part of my inspiration was this sense that I had of the place having become one to me. I feel a sense of belonging to the whole place. And I'm convinced it's because of how much time I've spent everywhere. So I love Wales. I love the Welsh accent. Uh, I like the fact that it's slightly different there, as it's slightly different in Ireland, in the south and in the north. It's different in England. It's different all over England, south, west, north, east. And so, inevitably, my story of the British Isles is scattered like confetti across the whole place because I had moments of, you know, revelation, if you like, in all the, in all the nations within the archipelago. I found places that seemed to tell a bigger story and it wasn't really a story about Wales necessarily or about Scotland or about Ireland or about England. In every instance, I felt that this, this, the individual stories helped to add yet more depth and colour to the story of the whole place. So here we are in Cantrer Gwaelod, which is a great sound. You know, just the name, if you're not a Welsh speaker or if you're not accustomed to hearing that, it's, it's, it sounds different. It's amazing to find a, a foreign-sounding word so close to home. You know, Cantrer Gwaelod, this is a small archipelago. And, and the west into Cardigan Bay in Wales is not far from for any of us. And yet, you go over there, and you know, and you, you're suddenly confronted with a different sound, and which is part of the magic. And also, in Wales, there's a lot of legend there. A, a lot. There's a lot of legend everywhere. You know, there's there's the Arthurian legends in England, and there's there's and there's Welsh legend, there's Scottish legend, there's Irish legend. And you feel it in certain places. You feel it more strongly than in others, uh, and and in certain parts of Wales, certainly there's a real celebration of the the idea of myth and folklore and legend and how it still matters in the in the present world. And really, that's what that's what the story of Cantrer Wylod is all about. Cantrer Wylod is. It's been a story that's been passed down generation to generation. There's really no way of knowing how old it is. It's certainly hundreds of years old. Because it's been told and retold, there are multiple versions of the story. Just as, say, in the case of, you know, Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, there's variations on what you hear about various parts of it and, and it's it, there, there are older tellings of the legend and there are younger tellings of the legend and they're, they're different one from another well likewise with, with Cantra Gwylod there's more than one way in which the story unfolds but at, ha at heart it's quite simple uh, it's known as the, the Welsh Atlantis because it's, it's telling the story of a place that was once greatly loved, greatly valued but which was lost, lost beneath the sea, hence Welsh Atlantis. And one version of the story has it that um, Cantrer Gwylod was uh, an incredibly fertile bit of territory 
and that an acre of farmland there was six times more uh, abundant and fertile than any other than an, than an acre of land elsewhere. Uh, so it was it was very carefully looked after and protected. And the people who lived in Cantrerwailod knew that they had it good. They were in a kind of Garden of Eden. You know, they knew they had it lucky. But because the land was low-lying and close by the sea, it had to be protected. And it was protected by a, a system of dikes and walls and sluice gates. And the system was that you would open the sluice gates when the tide was out and you would let the, the rivers and the, and the water of Cantrerguilo drain out, drain away. But it was terribly important that before the tide came back in, that the sluice gates were closed again and that the dikes and walls were all well maintained. And so it had been for the longest time. But then, depending on which version of the story, sometimes they say it was a watchman whose job it was to make sure the, the sluice gates were closed for every tide. And on this occasion, he got drunk. Somebody gave him too much wine or he attended a party or whatever. And he fell asleep. And while he was asleep, with the sluice gates open, the tide came in and the Cantrerguilod was flooded and it was lost. And everyone had to flee and go and make a harder life elsewhere. Another version of the story gives the job of looking after the sluice gates to a beautiful young woman, a maiden. And that there comes a fateful day when she's when she encounters a handsome man. Sometimes it's a king, uh, sometimes it's a rival claimant on Cantrerguilod. In any event, he comes into contact with the maiden and he spirits her away for some quiet, special time. And while, while her back is turned on the sluice gates, again, the tide comes in and the, and the Cantrerguilod is flooded and lost. So there are multiple stories, but they all end up in the same place with this fantastically important, valuable territory being lost and the people having to run for their lives and flee and leave everything behind. And as is the case with other legends in other parts of the landscape, they'll tell you that on quiet days, sometimes you can hear the bells tolling under the waves where these sunken churches across Cantrerguilod, the bells still ringing on perfect days, you can hear it. Now, so far, so mythical. And it just sounds like a, a fairy story, really, something that you would tell to children at bedtime to, you know, to make them fall asleep. But it turns out, if you apply a bit of geological or archaeological investigation in Cardigan Bay, lo and behold, you start to uncover elements of truth. Elements that start to make the story look less fanciful. And it's particularly the case in a, in a, a village in Cardigan Bay called Borth, B-O-R-T-H, Borth, uh, and it's one of there's more than one location you can go to but I was in Borth and you have to pay attention to the tide tables you, you have to go at certain times of year what you're really looking for is a very low tide where, the, where, where at low tide the water is very far out and you also need luck on your side because uh, the sand moves on any beach all the time you know the, the waves the sea picks it up and deposits it takes it away and moves it around and sometimes that which has been buried at Borth is revealed. So it, there's a bit of luck involved. But I, I happened to be there um, in the aftermath of a big storm. 
so there was a low tide, uh, but also the, 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 the storm had disturbed and moved a lot of sand. And as I walked down onto the beach at Borth, it looked from a distance as though all sorts of dead sea creatures had been washed up. There were all these sort of dark lumps spread out across the sand, as far as the eye could see. And, you know, to look at it, you'd have thought it was maybe something like, I don't know, a, a whole um, shoal of leatherback turtles or something had come in and died. It was weird. But as I got closer, I realised it was tree stumps. Scores of them, hundreds of them, all scattered across the sand, still rooted, still fixed in place. And archaeologists, geologists, tree specialists, whoever will tell you that at Borth there's an, uh, a forest that was inundated by the sea. Somewhere between maybe maybe four and 6,000 years ago. No one's quite sure how long ago this happened. But really ever since the end of the last ice age, the sea level has been changing. And when, when the weight of the ice and the, the glaciers was removed from the land, the land was rising up like a, a cushion that someone had been sitting on and when someone stands up, the cushion sort of reinflates. So there's been this kind of jockeying for position between the land and the sea. And at some point, several thousand years ago, there was an inundation. So what had been dry land with forest was, was flooded by the sea. And when you go out, you can see that the stumps are all different species. So you've got pine and alder, Birch, hazel, all different trees, big, big trees, you know, with, with trunks, you know, several feet across, massive trees. And so, you know, they've been inundated by the sea thousands of years ago. The seawater has killed them and they've fallen over and all that's left behind are the stumps. But it's, it's absolutely the case that thousands of years ago, at the time of the forest, the sea was maybe 20 or 30 miles further to the west in Cardigan Bay. And so a vast territory that's now underwater was dry land and it was just inundated. Now, losing land to the sea is, is very frightening for people. Even now, 21st century, when we understand as much as we do about geological forces and climate change and all the rest, where people are confronted with losing land to rising sea levels, it's very frightening. Uh, and there's also, there's generally speaking a sense of hopelessness about it because there's only so much we can do even now you know if the sea is going to get deeper you know there's only so much you can do and and we in different parts of the of the planet populations are facing losing land to the sea so they worry about this and there's every reason to think that at Car in Cardigan Bay and Borth and on that stretch that the inundation by the sea would have come in quickly you know, it wouldn't necessarily have, it wouldn't have taken hundreds of years or anything. It might have come in during the course of just a lifetime. So you'd have someone who, when they were a child, they were looking out at a forest, and by the time they were in their middle years, it was the sea. And that's traumatic for people. That's why people, maybe one of the reasons why, for example, people remember the flood that's in the Bible. And there are other ancient manuscripts. You know, the flood is in the Old Testament, but there's another story of a flood in an older document called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which also tells the story of, of, the, of the world being flooded and a family surviving by building a boat. It's a recurrent theme in ancient literature because the loss of land to the sea is, is a trauma. And people don't forget. 
And when it happens, they tell their children, and the children tell the grandchildren, and so on. And so, whatever, so that inundation by the sea at Borth traumatised a generation. And as time went on and people forgot maybe the details of exactly what had happened, they told a story to explain the loss. And it's interesting to me that there's a notion of um, having dropped the ball at Borth. There's an implication, there's a suggestion that it was someone's fault. Just as in the case of the biblical flood, it's, it's uh, the way the story unfolds in the Old Testament, it's that the people have been living in a way that disappoints God. And so he decides to wipe the slate clean and start again with just one family who are good, and that's Noah and his people. But everyone else, every animal, every bird, every person is, is done away with because we haven't been living the right kind of life. And it's interesting that, again, in the story of Cantor Gwailod, folded into the story is the idea of, of not taking responsibility, of letting ourselves down, and on account of not living properly and doing the right things, something of incalculable value was taken away from us. It's the same theme again. And I find that very interesting that, that people have responded in the past to loss of land and to natural disasters by assuming that they have done something wrong and that this is the consequence. And again, it's happening now in the 21st century. We're told all the time about climate change and, uh, and sea levels rising. And of course, we're also told it's our fault. We've been burning uh, fossil fuels. We've been, you know, we've, been, we've not been living responsibly and that there will be consequences. So it's fascinating to me that this has been a recurrent theme in the way that people have interpreted and understood natural events, that they take it upon themselves you see, this happened because we didn't live properly. We were careless or we were irresponsible. And look what happened. And so people have been mindful and minded to be concerned that if, if they don't live properly, what they have and what they value and what they need might be taken away. And it's there at Cantra at, at Goylod. It's amazing that the Flood's legend has stayed with us for four to five thousand years. It's because there are certain, it would appear that there are certain things that people don't forget. I, I mean, there are other, there are other physical reminders. Uh, there are strange features in the landscape, as well as the occasional sight of the tree stumps. A couple of miles south of Borth, there's a, a feature, a geological feature, called Sarnginfellen. It's two words, sarn. Sarn is a, it refers to a ridge of shingle. When you're on the, on, when you're at the coast in the vicinity of Sarn, Gunfellen, what you see is like a, it's almost like a cambered road surface stretching out into the sea and disappearing. So some of it's on dry land and then it, it disappears off under the waves. And it's wide. It's, it's as wide as a, it's wider than a road. It's like a motorway. And what it is, in fact, geologically speaking, is a, is a shingle spit that was left behind when the, at the end of the Ice Age. When the, when the ice melted and withdrew, this ridge was one of many 
that were that were revealed, but what had been underneath the ice. There's more than one, but Sarngenfellen is a particularly visible one. And it looks man-made. It's got the camber of a road. And it's associated with, with the legend of Cantor Gwylod. In the past, it was interpreted as one of the great dikes or walls that was protecting the lowland hundred. And, and so fathers would say to their sons, you see, it's, it's under the water now. Because it, the, because the sea came in and it, it, over, it overwhelmed the defences of Cantor Gwylod. It's just a geological feature, but, but hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, people wouldn't have interpreted it in that way. So it's a landscape. So people, whether or not they remembered the inundation by the sea, you've got a landscape there at, at Borth and in Cardigan Bay where from time to time tree stumps appear on the beach and there are massive, what look like man-made structures but partially submerged by the water. And people being people, they look for explanations. So people would say to themselves, what is that? That looks like, that looks like giants built it a long, long time ago. What do you suppose it was? So on the one hand, you've got a folk memory of an actual event, perhaps. But then as time goes on, just the, the landscape itself is triggering storytelling in people. You know, you've got features that lend themselves to something having happened. A flooded forest, what looked to be great walls. It doesn't take too much to fit it together into an all-encompassing legend like Cantor Gwylod. Are these ancient tree stumps that are spread out all over the bay fossilised? No, that's one of the one of the really surreal elements of it in terms of the experience to be had if you go there at the right time of year, is that the the wood is still soft. I mean, if you could you can make an impression in it with your fingernail. Wow. If you walk up and hunker down at one of the stumps, you can see the rings, you can still see the tree rings. And although there's, you know, barnacles and other shells growing on them, it's still soft. You know, and when you touch it, you know you're touching wood. It hasn't been turned into stone. You're not touching a fossil. And so that only adds to the strangeness because... It, it, it looks as if it's something that happened recently. And then you find out from dendrochronologists or whatever that it could be, you know, four, five, six thousand years in the past. It seems inconceivable. But it's just that a lot of the time it's buried under sand. Twice a day it's buried underwater and it has conspired to, to, to protect it. When it originally happened, when this what probably happened in the past, you'd have had an inundation by, by the rising sea level so sea that was once 20 miles further to the west is, has now crept all the way up uh, and that kills the forest the trees fall down and the, the upright bits get taken by the waves and all you're left with are the firmly anchored stumps and then the, the area closest to the dry land was in its own time buried beneath peat peat began to form on top so if you remember when we talked about the cage of fields in Ireland, in the west of Ireland, where the where the archaeologist has found all the buried stone walls. Well, it's the same process. There was a canter guilod in that in that waterlogged terrain, peat built up, and that protected the timber as well, because it created for a long time anaerobic, no oxygen, none of the processes of decomposition were possible. So it was smothered beneath this protective blanket of peat. 
And there are other locations in Cardigan Bay a little bit further inland, which are peat bog. And then when you dig down into the peat, you come across more of these more of this buried forest. So you have to picture. I mean, it's not just a few. It's not just a few trees. It's a forest. And maybe not a maybe not a forest like we think of when you think of say like a, a forestry plantation that you'll see on a on a hillside when you're driving along a road, you know where the trees are just a few feet apart. In the millennia before the farmers came, um, large parts of Britain were covered by open woodland, so the, the trees were more more spread out, more gaps between the trees than we would think of perhaps in the case of a forest. But softwoods in the main, you know, alder and beech, conifers like pine. But, so a mixed woodland of, of trees spread as far as the eye could see. You know, it's, a, it's an entire woodland that was just, you know, steadily inundated by the rising uh, sea level. So it's, it's, on a, it's on a mind-bending scale. You, you know, to think that, that people would be coming to terms with, with a landscape that that they were familiar with. You know, when you're, when you're living in one place and it always looks the same, just over the course of maybe a couple of decades, to see the sea that was over the horizon, you know, has come now right up to where you are. And you'd see the, you'd see the trees now surrounded twice a day by the, by the sea. And then gradually that, would, that kills the forest. The f- trees can't live in those circumstances and the trees die and they fall over and... And it's a it's a great disturb a great disruption for people. The people living would have had to move into the east, into the east of that Eden, and up onto dry land and start again. Sounds similar to Haysborough, where you took us in the first podcast. It's the village of Haysborough on the Norfolk coast, and the, the footprints are nearly a million years old. You know, it's being, it's falling into the sea. You know, the, the houses are just collapsing down onto the beach as the, as the erosion takes it. And that's, imagine what that's like for people. So it's, it's upsetting for the residents of Haysborough today. Well, it's, it's the same, so you'd have had people who had a territory that they were familiar with, and then it, it, it's, it's inundated. And then that, that, that loss, it's the loss that's remembered, not the specifics. And so the legend comes in place of the facts. Because they, people can sort of half remember that there must have been land there. If there are tree if there are tree stumps, there must have been that must have been above the sea at some point. What on earth can have happened? And so for want of actual facts, as we have them, you know, people, imaginative thinking people tell themselves a story that makes sense. And the legend of of Cantor the legend of the Lowland Hundred. The Welsh Atlantis. It makes sense. It's a. It all hangs together as a narrative. And uh, and and people and people care about it to this day. And it's still a story that they that they enjoy hearing. When you walk out into Cardigan Bay and are surrounded by all this legend and history and geology, what does it do to you? I find it. It's it's almost comfort, but but comfort with an edge, comfort with a cold edge, especially at a time like this. You know, you know where we're in the middle of the virus, 
uh, and people are taking stock and and wondering what will happen next. You know, when you're in a when you're in a a, a challenging period of time, uh, I find it can be comforting to pull back out of it. Get, you know, don't just be blinkered within it, but pull back out and be reminded that these islands have always been in a state of flux that things staying the same is an illusion and the outline that's so familiar that people think of when they think of the British Isles it's not it doesn't exist it never exists really you know the waves are breaking that shape is never there you know that's a snapshot of a moment and that moment's past so it's always being minutely altered anyway by every wave that breaks and by ongoing geological processes, erosion and all the rest. It's constantly changing. And I find that there's a comfort in knowing that we're always going through change. It's just that the change is sometimes so slow we can't see it. But then you go to a place like Borth and when you're out there amongst those submerged tree stumps, it's just a reminder that the archipelago is shimmering before our eyes like a like a mirage floating above a hot surface. It's any any sense of it of any of its being permanent is illusory. And once you get once you get accustomed in your head to the idea of it, of it always changing, then upheavals that you go through personally in your life but get get set against a larger context. And this archipelago is not finished. It used to be a peninsula of Western Europe. That's one big thing to remember. The British Isles are new. They're only 8,000 years old. And for millions of years before that, it was just part of the European continent. And then it became an archipelago. And that archipelago is being constantly modified. It's being eroded. Do you know that the... The Long Island of Britain, with Scotland at the, at the north and England and Wales further south, because of where the, the ice was, the, the ice was thicker further north, and so there was more weight. And so if you picture a seesaw, the Scottish end of the seesaw had the heavier weight on it, and it was pushed down into the Earth's crust by the weight of the glaciers. Okay, But th- there wasn't so much weight at the English end. So... Once all the ice was gone, there was a process of coming back up. And so Scotland, because it was under the heavier weight, is tipping up and emerging from the sea. And England, down in the south coast, is tipping down into the sea. Minutely that process is going on. It's happening all the time. You know, so if you come back here, if you were to, if you were to have the opportunity to come back to, the, to this archipelago and... 10,000 years or a million years <laughs> it'll be so different and I, I, f- I find that uh, I find that reassuring for, for reasons that are I think you either you either find that reassuring or you don't but I once I became a, accustomed to the thought of the place being in a constant state of flux then the, the little changes that I see in my lifetime are just like bubbles of foam on the top, there was a there was a French um, historian called Brodel who who came up with the idea of the long durée, the long term, and he envisioned that in terms of history, he suggested that time and history is like a very deep ocean, 
and on the on the top of the of the ocean are tiny little frothy bubbles that are created moment by moment, and that's like that's like the the lifetimes of nations. Just those just those frothy bubbles are like the life of a government or a or a or a period of time, and they're moved by by the waves on the surface. They're floating on much bigger movements, but then down in the deep deep water where the light doesn't reach are the unimaginably languid, slow movements of deep time. And they're so slow that to our eyes they're almost, it's almost stationary. But it's massive power expressing itself in a way that's hard for us to perceive from our standpoint up, on the, up, on the, up amongst the bubbles on the surface. But that's what our time here in these British Isles is. It's froth. It's, it's dandelion fluff that's so inconsequential. The things that we worry about are just brief, flickering moments. And all the while, the landscape itself is on the move. I can see why for some people, though, the thought of being dwarfed by time might make it seem like their lives don't mean anything. I don't feel it means that it doesn't mean anything. I just... It's like being part of a bigger moving picture. You know, we're just frames in a flick book that you run through under your thumb, but you're still part of the picture. But but there's no point in getting too stressed about the little bit that you're living through, because it won't last. Chasing a rare and elusive metal, three and a half thousand years ago, Phoenician merchants moored their ships off the Cornish coast. Transported to the Mediterranean and beyond, Cornish tin was used to make the weapons and tools that powered the Bronze Age. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To ensure you get each new episode of this podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe. Maybe write a review and share it with your friends. You can follow in my footsteps as my journey unfolds across these aisles of ours by going to my podcast's Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter, and seeing the places I've chosen. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. Additional research was carried out by Oscar, Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance was looked after by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Althorpe Studios. The photography by Neil R. And the graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. <laughs>